Okay, well, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 22 this morning. And our focus will be verses 16 to 22. Psalm 37, verse 1, says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow, to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the day of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray today, Lord, as we again see this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, Lord, that we would, by faith, Lord, see and understand, Lord, that there is a day of judgment coming upon this world, and whatever one's position, Lord, whatever riches, whatever possessions they have in this life, Lord, they will not take them to the life to come, and they will not stand with them on the day of judgment. So, Lord, may we judge ourselves and may we judge others, Lord, not by what our eye sees, Lord, but by what your word says concerning the condition of every man. And, Lord, may we testify, as the prophet does, that it is better to be righteous and have very little than to be wicked and have the abundance of many people. So, Lord, teach us today, Lord, to desire and pursue those things that are spiritual, Lord, above those things that are worldly. And, Lord, may we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are in this psalm where the prophet is teaching the righteous not to fret nor to be envious of evildoers, but rather to look at them and to look at themselves and all things in relationship to eternity, right? Last week, we saw that the wicked, they hate the righteous. They devise malicious schemes against them. They gnash their teeth at them because of the uprightness of their conduct. And when this happens, the righteous are prone to fear, to anxiety, to fretting, to being, uh, having trepidation and fear because of these things to thinking that God is aloof or that God is unaware of the threats that the wicked are making. 
right, to think that God does not care about our plight on earth. Yet we saw last week, we were assured that God is not idle, that God does see and hear all of their malicious schemes, and that God is not one bit concerned about it. That while the wicked are gnashing their teeth against the righteous, while they are plotting against the children of God, while they have their swords drawn against the upright, while they have their bows bent against them, God is in heaven laughing at them because he knows the futility of their schemes against the righteous. God mocks the wicked because he knows that no matter how hard they may try to destroy the righteous, they will never succeed in doing so. For when the wicked seek to destroy the righteous, they are setting themselves against the Almighty God, against the very purposes of God. God's desire is to grant to His children the kingdom of God, to give to them a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So though the wicked may scheme with all of their craftiness and oppose this with all of their might, they will never succeed in undermining the purpose of God. As it says... Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. God mocks, he laughs, because he sees the futility in the efforts of the wicked to do these things. Also, he mocks because he sees that their day is coming. He knows that the day of judgment is coming upon the wicked. And all of their evil, all of their schemes are going to descend on their own head. The sword that they have drawn to pierce the upright in heart is going to be thrust into their own heart. Right? The bow that they have bent will be broken and will be to their own ruin and demise. God will turn their evil on their own head. Again, as it says, He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which He has made. His mischief will return on His own head and His violence will descend upon His own pate. Psalm seven fifteen to 16 This is what God will do. He will deliver his people by turning the mischief of the wicked against them. Now, all of this is written for our benefit, right? It's all written for us to strengthen our faith during the time of our sojourning, right? This is the time of our testing, and this is the hour of darkness, right? When the wicked are ruling and ranting and raving and gnashing their teeth. But we must discern the end so that we live by faith and not by sight. That's the purpose of the psalm, is to build up our faith to strengthen us so that we don't grow feeble and weak in the time of our sojourning. So let's pick up today in verse 16. Psalm 37, verses 16 and 17. says, Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. There, he says, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Right? One righteous person who has a meager life, right? A meager salary, a meager existence, right? This one is not whining and dining in the finest establishments. He's not going on lavish vacations. He doesn't have access to all the niceties and all the pleasures and comforts of this life. He's not living an opulent life, but is living a simple, quiet, meager existence before God. Yet what this one righteous person possesses is far greater than the abundance of many wicked, he says. Right? Not the abundance of one wicked man, not even the abundance of two wicked men, but rather the abundance of many wicked men. Take a simple Christian man, right? This one single simple Christian man who knows the Lord. 
whose sins have been forgiven, right? who has been reconciled to God, who has an inheritance stored up for him in heaven. That man is in a better position. He is more to be envied than many wicked persons combined together with all of their riches and all of their treasures and all of their wealth. It is better to be a simple Christian than to be wicked and have all of the wealth of the world, to have all of the wealth of the richest people in the world. Now, the question is, do we believe this? Because it's easy to say, oh, yeah, we believe that. But do we really believe it? Would we rather be a poor Christian or rich and wicked? For many people, the greatest evil they can imagine is poverty in this life is not living uh, the American dream, right? Not having the life that they want. To have to live paycheck to paycheck. To not be able to live a comfortable life. To not have access to all the things that they want and desire in this world. To not be able to acquire possessions for themselves. But here the Bible is telling us, it's better to be righteous with very little, right? Better to be righteous and poor than to be wicked, even if you have vast treasures, Isn't this clearly the case with the rich man and Lazarus? Even Lazarus, we're not in his situation, right? We're not beggars. We're not desiring to eat food that falls from the rich man's table. We're not covered with sores, having the dogs lick our sores. Yet isn't it true that Lazarus was better and more to be envied than the rich man? Even the rich man and all of his wealth and all of his pleasures. Proverbs chapter 15 Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16. Proverbs 15, verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fatted ox served with hatred. There, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with turmoil. Better to have a dish of vegetables a simple dish of vegetables than a fat ox when there is hatred, turmoil, and strife, not only in the home, but also ultimately against the Lord of heaven. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. There again, it is better to have very little, to have a meager existence and yet possess righteousness than to have great wealth, even the abundance of many wicked persons and all of their wealth combined, right? Better to have little in righteousness than great abundance in wickedness. Now, why? Why is this the case? Well, notice what he says. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. This is the reason why. The reason why it is to be better to be preferred to be righteous with a little than wicked with the abundance of many is because there is a day coming when God is going to break the arms of the wicked, right? The arms of the wicked represent their power, their might, the strong arm of the man. Yet even the strongest man in the world who has two broken arms has no strength. All of his strength is gone whenever his arms are broken. And so it will be with the wicked. In the wicked, right, with them, their wealth, their treasures, their prosperity, right? This is where their strength lies. This is where they think their strength lies. This is what gives them power in this life. But what's going to happen to their power? 
is going to be broken. God is going to break their arms. Their treasures, their wealth, will be of no help to them on the day of judgment. For the wicked, even the wicked rich, will not enter the kingdom of God. They will not go to heaven, right? They will not, nor will the wicked poor. But rather, all of those who work iniquity will be cast into the lake of fire. A wicked man with wealth will have no advantage on the day of judgment to a wicked man who has no wealth. Right? Both the wicked rich and the wicked poor will stand before the Lord. Both of them will be judged according to their deeds of wickedness. And both of them will be cast into the lake of fire. And his wealth will not avail him any help on that day of judgment. Will the wicked rich be able to barter with God? Will they be able to bribe God so as to blind justice? Can they buy their way out of the torments of hell, out of eternal judgment? No. And why is that the case? Well, one, God doesn't need their money. God has, he already owns it all. It all belongs to the Lord. So even if they could take their money with them on the day of judgment, God doesn't need it because it's all his anyway. But that's if they could take it. But the Bible tells us what? We don't take anything with us, right? We do not take anything with us. We do not take our riches. We do not take our wealth with us into the life to come. So on the day of judgment, we stand before God naked with nothing, nothing for which to barter, nothing but our own sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15. says, as he came naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. He came naked from his mother's womb, and he will return to God naked. You enter the world with nothing, and you leave the world with absolutely nothing. All of the fruit of the labor is for this present life. Right? It's for this present life, and it stays in this world, and it does not go with us into the world to come. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It'll first, as this world continues on, it will be given to another man and used by that man. And then ultimately, when Christ returns, it'll all be burned with fire. But either way... We will not take it with us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. 1 Timothy 6, 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So can the rich man use his riches on the day of judgment to barter with God? Well, no, not according to these passages, because he won't have anything to barter with. He takes nothing with him before God. This is the same as the prophet Job says in Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. So, for example, in our own day, take Elon Muskie. Elon Muskie, the world's richest man, the paper billionaire, okay? The world's richest man right now. And what will he take with him into the life to come? Absolutely nothing. 
So he will, in terms of his wealth and possessions, have the exact same standing as the, uh, the bum who's living in San Francisco right now. Both of them will stand before God with absolutely nothing. Take Bill Gates. What will he take with him into the life to come? Absolutely nothing. And he will stand before God and his wealth will be of no help to him on the day of judgment. And this is why it says in Proverbs eleven twenty eight, He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. If you trust in your riches, you are going to fall. Sometimes that fall happens even in this life. But ultimately that fall happens when? It happens on the day of judgment. It happens in the life to come. If you are trusting in your riches, you will ultimately fall. This is the fate of the wicked rich. But notice the difference between him and the righteous poor. What does the Lord do for the righteous? He upholds him. The Lord upholds the righteous. The arms of the wicked will be cut off, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Right On the day of judgment, God will uphold the righteous poor. Now, he'll do this not because he's poor, but because he's what? Because he's righteous, because he's reconciled to God, because he is a believer. Right, That's the key. The righteous poor, like, like Lazarus, or the righteous rich, like Solomon or Abraham, both of them will be upheld by the Lord, while the wicked poor and the wicked rich will have their arms broken. Right? In terms of a man standing before God, the absence or the presence of wealth means absolutely nothing. Right? All that matters is new creation manifested in keeping the commandments of God. Here in our passage, he's contrasting a righteous man with very little with a wicked man who has an abundance. Right? Not because the ultimate issue is wealth or poverty. The ultimate issue is righteous versus wicked. The reason he's contrasting this, though, is because what are people fascinated with in this present world? What do all people think about all the time? What do they care about above all other things? Money, right? Money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is on the minds of men all the time. Money is what men think gives them standing before God, makes them important, right? Gives them access to all these things. And he's telling us that this is not the case at all. A righteous man with very little is to be preferred over a wicked man with a great abundance. Not because the righteous man is poor, but because he's righteous. Because he's been made righteous through faith in Christ. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Notice what it says in verse 15. It says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Right? That's what matters. Not circumcision, not uncircumcision, but new creation. Right? The same can be true of poverty or riches. Right? Poverty doesn't matter. Riches don't matter. What matters? What determines a man? New creation. Is he a new creation? And then if he's rich in a new creation, he's reconciled to God. If he's poor in a new creation, he's reconciled to God. If he's rich and he's not a new creation, he's under the wrath of God. If he's poor and he's not a new creation, he's under the wrath of God. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 
Now, I'm making this distinction because it's common today in progressivism, liberalism, and that's crept into the churches, for people to say that God has a special place in his heart for the poor, regardless of the way they live. It doesn't matter how they live, but God loves all the poor. But that's not the case. God does not love poor idolaters. God does not have a special place in his heart for poor people who live a godless life. They're under the wrath of God, right? Poverty is not the issue. Riches are not the issue. The issue is new creation. And not merely new creation in that we proclaim this to be true of ourselves, but new creation that manifests itself in keeping the commandments of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Now here, why is the apostle in Galatians saying all that matters is new creation, but now he's saying what matters is keeping the commandments of God? Is he contradicting himself? No, these are one and the same. Because what happens when a person is a new creation? What is the fruit or evidence that someone is a new creation? He keeps the commandments of God, right? He keeps the commandments of God. So that is the evidence of new creation is keeping God's commandment. Again, these same truths can be applied to riches or poverty. A man does not go to hell because he is rich, nor does he go to heaven because he is poor. All that matters is new creation, conversion, being born again by the Holy Spirit, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, repentance toward God that manifests itself by his good fruit, by his good deeds, seen in keeping the commandments of God. If one is poor and righteous, then he has what really matters, right? He has true wealth. He has true treasures that he can take with him on the day of judgment. And what is the treasure that the righteous man takes with him on the day of judgment? It is the very righteousness of Christ. That we can take with us on the day of judgment, but not our money, right? Not our gold and silver, but we can take with us the very righteousness of Christ. And if the poor man has that, then he has what matters. So he should not grumble. He should not complain about his situation in life. If he has food and drink with that, he ought to be content. And he should rejoice before God because his name is written in heaven. And if one is rich and righteous, then he also possesses true wealth. Not his gold or his silver, but the very righteousness of Christ. Then this is the treasure that he also will take with him on the day of judgment. And so he should not boast in his wealth, but use it for the glory of God, use it for the good of his fellow man, and rejoice that his name is written in heaven. But again, when it comes to this present world, most men want wealth, they want treasures above everything else. Riches at all costs, whatever it takes. But we cannot have this perspective, right? We cannot buy into this lie. The prophet is teaching us here not to be like that. We must learn from the prophet. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. And why this is the case is because of day of judgment. It is the day of judgment that neutralizes and equalizes all of these things, right? Because of the life to come. Because there is the blessing of heaven and there is the curse of hell that is coming upon all men. 
It's one or the other. You're either going to heaven or you are going to hell. And this is why it's better to be poor and righteous than rich and wicked. Because the poor righteous man is going to go to heaven and the rich and wicked man is going to go to hell. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. This is what Jesus teaches. Now notice here in this passage, it has nothing to do with the amount of wealth a person has. How much or how little. It all has to do with their standing, their relationship before God. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. This would be the same as 1 Corinthians 7.19, keeping the commandments of God. What commandment here is he highlighting? Love of God and love of neighbor, right? Love of God and love of neighbor. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, to one of the least... To one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the hell fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Right? There, that's all that matters. These, the wicked, eternal punishment, but the righteous, eternal life. That's why it's better to be righteous with very little than wicked with very much. Because the righteous are going to eternal life, but the wicked are going to eternal punishment. We have to believe that. If we don't believe that, we can't live the Christian life. It's impossible for us to live the Christian life without believing this truth. This is why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Fear of what God's going to do on the day of judgment. Right In aligning our life, ordering our life now, presently, in light of these future realities that will be manifested and made known on the day of judgment. Right? The conviction of things not seen. These things have not been seen yet, but they have been revealed to us in the word of Christ. And we must believe them and live according to these truths. That's why it's better to have little and be righteous than be wicked in the abundance of many rich persons. Now, no one in the world believes that, but we have to believe it because it's in the word of God. Verse 18, Psalm 37, verse 18. 
says, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the day of famine, they will have abundance. There, the Lord knows the day of the blameless, right? The days of the blameless, which is the life of the blameless. They are known by God. Our days do not pass outside the sight of God, but God is intimately familiar with every single second every minute, every hour of every day of our life. God sees all of these things. He knows the days of the blameless. And God knows it in that he is caring for us. He's watching over us. Doesn't God know how to care for his own people? Right? Don't we believe that God loves us and that God will not let us perish? That if we belong to him, that he is carefully watching over us ensuring that we will enter into our salvation, the salvation that he has prepared beforehand for us. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, right? If God knows how to grant to his children eternal salvation, then we have no reason to doubt him, but every reason to trust him, not only for the life to come, but also for this present life. That God is watching over us. He's caring for us. So even if we do experience sufferings and afflictions at the hands of the wicked, it is not because God is uninterested or God doesn't know what's happening or that God doesn't love us. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in the created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There, what more can God do to prove his love for his people? What more can God give to assure us of his fatherly love for us. What did he give for us? He did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. So do we now think that God will not also graciously give to us all things? That God is going to withhold us from us those good things that he knows that we need? God gave to us his son. And now he will graciously give to us all things according to his will for his glory and for our good. And God's ultimate goal for us is not our comfort and it's not our enjoyment of this present life. God's goal for us is our eternal salvation. God's goal for us is our sanctification. It is our glorification that we might enter into the possession of an everlasting and abiding inheritance. And this is what the prophet says in Psalm 37. Their inheritance is forever. Their inheritance will be forever. 
God's purpose is not to give to us an earthly inheritance that we can't take with us into the life to come. Why would God give us as our inheritance worldly riches knowing that we can't take them into the life to come? Knowing that all of those things are going to be burned up. So what is God's purpose for us? What kind of inheritance does he store up for his people? Eternal. An eternal inheritance that cannot be lost, that can never be destroyed. This is what God will give to his people. But he won't do that for the wicked. He will only do it for the righteous. The wicked, they have no inheritance from God. What they even have in this life, they will lose. And then ultimately in the life to come, they will suffer the loss of all things. All of their wealth will transfer to another. Their treasures, their possessions will go to another man. And then on the day of judgment, they will forfeit their eternal soul. Because their inheritance, their part is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The lake of fire, hell, is the second death, and this is their portion. This is the inheritance that God gives to them because of their sin. As it says, Revelation 21, verse 8, But for the cowardly, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what they will get. But the righteous, in contrast, they will get eternal life, eternal inheritance from God. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Luke 12, 32 says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? There is the treasure. The treasure is the eternal inheritance. So we don't have to worry about this life, the things of this life. We're not concerned with storing up all of these treasures and possessions as if one's life consists in the abundance of his possessions. We know that that's not the case. One's life consists in the abundance of his eternal possessions. So this is why the righteous are able to give freely, to be gracious, to sell their possessions and store up for themselves treasures in heaven. Notice also Psalm 37. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. And in the days of famine, they will have an abundance. Here, both the righteous and the wicked will experience times of evil. When God pours out his judgments on the earth. Right? When God strikes the land with famine. Now, if God wants to, if he so chooses, God can make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Such as the plagues of Egypt. When God sent his judgments upon Egypt, the afflictions attacked the Egyptians, but the Israelites were spared. God did not pour those same things out upon them. So he made a distinction, the one between the other. But God doesn't always do this. This is not always the case. Many times the righteous will suffer times of evil alongside the wicked. And we have many examples of this in the Bible, such as the prophet Jeremiah. 
who was a righteous man, and yet because of the sins of the nation, what happened to Jeremiah? He suffered great afflictions, right? And he was even kidnapped, taken into Egypt, and had a miserable existence there. Such was the prophet Daniel as well. A righteous man, and yet what happened to Daniel and his friends? They were taken into exile, they were taken into captivity, not because of their sins, but because of the sins of others, because of the sins of the nation. But even though those things happened to Daniel and his friends, even though those things happened to Jeremiah and to many others, even though the righteous are not exempted from the times of evil, and they are mingled in alongside the wicked, they experience hunger, they have adversity, both of these things are common to the righteous and the wicked, but when the righteous endure these things, they have nothing to be ashamed of. They don't have anything to be ashamed of because they know the suffering, the affliction, is not punishment because of their sin. It's not because of the destruction that God is bringing upon them and it being a precursor of what's going to happen on the day of judgment. They know that when God afflicts them, it is for their sanctification, right? It is for their good. And ultimately, in the end, God will deliver them from every form of evil. But this is not the case with the wicked. God sends days of evil on them to judge them, to destroy them, so that they might be cast into hell. So sufferings and afflictions, they happen to both the righteous and the wicked, but they have one purpose for the righteous and another purpose for the wicked. The presence of affliction for the righteous is not an indication that God does not love him, but rather it is an indication that God does love him, that God is his father and that he's treating him as a son. Because what father doesn't discipline his son? If a father doesn't discipline his son, it's because he's an illegitimate son, because he doesn't love him and because he does not care for him. Well, God is our heavenly father, isn't he? And as our heavenly father, we want God to give us good gifts, don't we? But we don't want God to discipline us. We don't want God to chastise us. You can't have it both ways. You can't have God as your father to give you good gifts and not have him as your father to discipline you as he sees fit. And how does God discipline us in this life? With afflictions, with afflictions and sufferings. Hebrews chapter 12. And these afflictions and sufferings are no indication that God hates us or has abandoned us or forsaken us, but that God loves us, cares for us, and is concerned with our salvation and is doing what is necessary in order to sanctify us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. It says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Notice that. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So if he does not discipline you, then what does that prove? He doesn't love you. And he scourges every son whom he receives. So if God does not scourge you, then what does that mean? He doesn't receive you. Isn't that the obvious conclusion that we're to draw from that passage? Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right? The father disciplines the son. If you're without discipline, you're not a son. That's the point he's making here. And we all know and recognize that on earth, our earthly fathers, they discipline us because they love us. And they do it as they seem best. They do it to the best of their ability according to their own uh, finite wisdom and knowledge. But God has infinite knowledge. He has perfect wisdom and understanding. So does God know best how to discipline his children, how to raise his children, how to prepare them for eternal dwellings. Of course he does. And this is why the presence of affliction is no indication that God hates us, but rather it is an indication that God loves us. But for the wicked, it's different. For the wicked, the presence of affliction is a precursor, a preview of what is yet to come of the day of judgment that is coming upon them. It is a sign of God's contempt for them and his wrath against them. And this is why the wicked are ashamed during times of evil. Right, as it says in Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. They flee when no one pursues them because they know what is coming. They know the day of judgment is coming upon them. They know, as we read earlier from Romans 1.32, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet what do they do? They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. But they know, they know deep down that the day of judgment is coming for them. And when the presence of affliction comes, it is a reminder to them of what awaits them on the day of judgment. This is for the wicked, but not for the righteous. The righteous, they have nothing to fear. They will have an abundance even during the days of famine. Even during the times of difficulty and hardship, they have an abundance because they have the blessing of God upon them. The blessing of God is with them whether they have a feast or whether they have a famine. It doesn't matter, right? Their condition cannot take away from them the blessing of God, the spiritual blessings, the spiritual abundance that God pours out on his people. And then also many times, what does God do for them even during the days of famine? He provides for them. He meets their needs. He provides and gives to them all the things that they need. Such as the case in 1 Kings chapter 17. Wasn't this what God did for Elijah and the widow of Zarephath? He didn't do it for anyone else, but he did it for them. They had abundance while everyone else was languishing away during the famine. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. God did it for Elijah twice. 1 Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, Before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. 
the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please, bring me a piece of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks, that I may go in and prepare for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first, and bring it out to me. And afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. During the day of famine, did they suffer want? Not like everyone else. They had abundance, right? They had abundance. They ate for many, many days because God provided for them. Now, God does not guarantee that the righteous will never suffer loss. He does not guarantee that they will not experience hunger or thirst. But even if we are afflicted with these hardships, we know for certain that God has not forsaken us that we still have the blessing of God upon our lives. And if God so chooses, even if he has to send a raven to bring bread and meat to us, even if he has to miraculously provide for us as he did the widow and Elijah and her household, can God do that? God can do whatever he pleases. So should we doubt? Should we fear during these days? No. Even if there is the deprivation of worldly possessions or even worldly necessities, we still have nothing to be ashamed of, and we still have an abundance of God's goodness even during times of evil, even during times of famine. Psalm 37, verse 20. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The situation of the wicked is far different from the righteous. Right? The righteous have an abundance. They have an eternal inheritance. But the wicked, he says, they will perish. They have much to be ashamed of. They do not have the abundance of God. They don't have the blessing of God during the day of famine. But the curse of God remains on them. And here they are described as being like the glory of the pastures. Right During the summer months, during the spring and summer, the pastures are filled with life. They're filled with crops. They're teeming with strength. This is as the wicked are in this life, in their prosperity. 
They are full. They are fat. They are sassy. They are ripe. They have their strength. They appear to be immovable. Yet like the glory of the pasture, here one day and gone the next, they will soon perish. They will vanish like smoke that rises from a fire. Here for a moment and then gone. This is the strength of the wicked. They have no stability. This is their problem. They are unstable, unstable as water, unstable as the pastures, unstable as smoke. Here one day, gone the next. Alive one day, dead the next. This is the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous have stability, while the wicked have none at all. What they possess, they will soon lose. It will be gone. It will all vanish away from the earth. But the righteous will never be shaken. Right? They are immovable. They have an abiding, eternal, heavenly inheritance that can never be lost. It cannot rust. It cannot be eaten by moths. Thieves cannot break in and steal it. It will never be taken from them. Because who is guarding it for them? Who's keeping it for them? God. And who can overcome God? No one can do such things. Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10, verse 27. Proverbs 10, 27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Notice that, the fear of the Lord. Not riches, not wealth, not possessions. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous is gladness, but the expectation of the wicked perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but ruin to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. The righteous will never be shaken. They'll never be shaken, but the wicked, they will be shaken. They will be shaken, and they will not dwell in the land. Also notice here in Psalm 37, In verse 20, the wicked are described as being the enemies of the Lord. The enemies of the Lord. We often think of these people as unbelievers, being lost, being dazed, being confused. They don't know what they're doing. They're like innocent victims of Satan who he's bound them in sin contrary to their will. They would really want to be free of it, but they have no ability to do so. But here, this is not the case at all. The wicked are described as being enemies of the Lord. And an enemy is active. He knows full well what he's doing. He's malicious. He is intentional in what he does. This is what the sinner is like. He is an enemy of God who knows full well what he is doing. Even if he plays dumb, he's not dumb. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. This is what he is. So these are not good decent, wholesome people who just need a little bit of nudging in the right direction. We are not just a little flawed. We have a few mistakes here and there, and we just need a little help to overcome these things. That's not the way the Bible describes men in their sinful state. They are called wicked. Isn't that the phrase he's using over and over and over in this psalm? Wicked, evildoers, ungodly, enemies of God. This is the way the Bible describes them. Right? And people say, well, that sounds very harsh. 
It sounds very unloving. Well, it's true. If it's true, it's not harsh and it's not unloving. And the reason the Bible speaks like this is because nobody takes sin seriously. No one takes sin seriously. And this is why so few people are reconciled to God. Because no one is taking it seriously. We have to speak about sin and about sinners the way the Bible does. And if we're speaking the way the Bible does, it's not unloving. It's not ungracious. It's not unkind. It's truthful, right? Being truthful and being loving are always one in the same. Telling a man that he's an enemy of God, that's what he needs to hear, right? He needs to know this so that he sees the gravity of his sin so that he might run away from it, that he might repent of it and be reconciled to God. So here, the wicked are enemies of the Lord, willing, ready participants with the devil against the Lord, against his word, and against his people. This is what we have to think according to the Bible. A man is either righteous or he is wicked. He's either a child of God or he is a child of the devil. He's either a friend of God or he is an enemy of the Lord. The Bible deals with men in black and white issues, in these two categories, in these two categories alone. You're either one or the other. There are not many various categories, right? There are not some people who are for God and some people who are enemies of God, and then most people just exist somewhere in the middle, right? They're indifferent, they're in the middle, and they don't have a dog in the fight. They're like the Swiss. That's what people think. Swiss cheese. But no, this isn't the case at all. What did our Lord Jesus Christ say? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Matthew 12, verse 30. You're either with me, Jesus says, or you are against me. It's that black and white. That's Jesus. Talk about narrow-minded. That's the way Jesus was. Isn't it a, broad, a, a hard, narrow way that leads to life? And there are few who find it? So that's the way that we have to be as well, as well, as narrow-minded as Jesus. And if people say that's bigoted, uh, you're a nincompoop, whatever they want to say, they'll have all sorts of horrible things to say about that. You're judgmental, you're harsh. Well, that's okay. That's what they said about him. And that's good company to be in, right? To be maligned with Jesus and to be maligned with the holy prophets. That's what they did to them. And according to our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 6, if they do this, we have the blessing of God. Because so they did to the prophets. But if they all speak well of us, we don't have the blessing of God. We have the curse of God upon us because that's what they did to the false prophets. To the false prophets. Psalm 37, 21 and 22. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land but those cursed by him will be cut off. Here, evidence. Evidence. He's either describing what a man is by his nature, what he is by his sin, or he's giving evidence to prove and validate the distinctions that he's making. The evidence of the wicked and the evidence of the righteous in relationship to money. Now, we've said it once. We'll say it again, and we'll probably repeat it a million times throughout the course of the ministry here. One of the clearest indicators of a person's spiritual condition, whether he is righteous or whether he is wicked, is how he views and how he handles money. 
the way people deal with money tells you everything you need to know about their heart. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Well, what is true of the wicked? The wicked borrows and does not pay back. Why would a person do this? Other than he's filled with greed. He's a covetous man. Isn't that thievery? Isn't it theft to borrow money from a person? Yes, whenever you borrow the money, the person is giving it to you willingly. But what is the expectation? That you're going to give it back to them. That you're going to pay back what it is that you have borrowed. And if you do not pay your debts, if you do not pay back what you have borrowed, you are a thief. This is thievery. You are stealing what belongs to another man. Well, this is what the wicked are like. They are filled with greed, with covetousness, such an insatiable desire for money that even what they owe, right, even what they are obligated to pay, they refuse to do so. They borrow and they are obligated to pay. There is the expectation that they pay, but they will not pay it back. They borrow, but they do not repay. Now, here, clearly, this is as a side note, We should pay our debts. As Christians, this is basic, simple Christianity. This is the Eighth Commandment, right? 101, what we ought to do. First, we should not take on frivolous debt. So we as Christians should not borrow money frivolously for frivolous, useless things. So we should not take foolish debt upon ourselves. And then secondly, if we do have debt, what should we do with that debt? We should pay back what we borrow. This is what Christians should do. Don't even many Gentiles know to do this? Even Gentiles do this. If Gentiles pay their debts, then we as Christians ought even more to pay our debts. But the wicked, they don't do that. They don't pay their debts. But the righteous, notice the contrast. The righteous is gracious and gives. Notice the difference between the two in their way they handle money. Right here, we're not talking about obligation. We're talking about giving, right? Being gracious. In terms of giving, we are not obligated to give it to another man. The righteous are not under a compulsion, not under an obligation from the law to give to another man, such as the one who borrows. The person who borrows is obligated by the law to repay the man what he borrowed, but the person who gives, he doesn't have the obligation to part with his money. And yet, what is the righteous man doing? He's parting with it anyway. He's giving it away anyway, and he's doing so freely, willingly, graciously, joyfully, because he's compelled by what kind of a law? The law of love. He's under the law of love, Because the love of God has flooded his heart, and so now the love of Christ compels him not to be begrudging, but rather joyfully and graciously to give to those who have needs, to help whenever he sees a legitimate need. This is as it says in Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. This is true of all the righteous. Even the righteous poor will do this, will be gracious and will give. Even though the righteous poor have very little, they have little to spare, 
they will be more gracious and they will be more giving than the wicked rich. Do you know that this is even true in the world today? That those who are more liberal in their thinking are more stingy with their money? Those who tend to be more conservative are more gracious and more giving to charity and other types of things? Yes, that is true. Liberals who claim to want to help everyone, but who's, with whose money do they want to help everyone? They want to help them with our money, right? Not their own. If you want to help the poor, go give your money to them, but leave me alone, right? Leave me alone and let me give mine as I want. But this is the case. The more conservative, the more gracious. Well, then certainly the more biblical, the more gracious, right? The more Christian, the more gracious, right? The more the love of God is understood by the man, then the more he will be gracious and give. We would expect that the rich man would be more gracious and more giving because he has an abundance of wealth, while the poor man would be able to give very little. Yet even when there's a disparity of wealth, the righteous poor are more gracious, they are more generous, more giving, more aware, more willing to relieve the needs of others than the wealthy man who is greedy and covetous. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This was the case with the churches in Macedonia. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Here, the Macedonians are themselves poor, and yet what do they do? They gave according to their ability and beyond their ability, beyond their ability to even give. And why did they do this? What compelled them to do such things? Love of God. Love of God and love of the brethren. This is what compelled them to do so. Isn't that the same as what we're reading in Psalm 37, verse 21? The righteous is gracious and gives. Those who are gracious and give prove themselves to be righteous, to be redeemed, to be the children of God. They were the ones who will be blessed by God, and they will inherit the land. Their willingness to part with their possessions because of love of God and love for neighbor shows that they are not worldly-minded men, but are by faith looking for heavenly rewards. They are storing up treasures in heaven because that is where their heart resides. Why else would they give it away? This is why they're doing it. But those who borrow and do not repay, who defraud their fellow men, they show that they are consumed only with this present world. And they prove themselves to be greedy, covetous, worldly-minded men. And they will not receive the blessing from the Lord, but the curse of God will be on them on the day of judgment, and they will be cut off. So whatever they have sought to secure by fraud will be lost on the day of judgment, 
and their very life will be forfeited to God. So here we see then, again, the key. The key to living properly in this present world. We have to keep our mind fixed upon the day of judgment. Right? That's the key. We have to have the day of judgment in our mind. And on that day, a man will either receive blessing or cursing. Will we receive eternal blessing or will we receive eternal cursing from God? If we receive eternal blessing from God, then whatever suffering we have endured in this life will be nothing to us. It will seem as nothing in the life to come. Because this is what it says. Romans 8.18 I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When the righteous man is entering into the joy of the Lord, when he is partaking of his divine, eternal inheritance that God has given to him, will he at that time be thinking about all of his hardships, all of his sorrows? Will he be saying, you know what, yeah, these are really great joys and comforts in heaven, but it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it because I really suffered a lot in this world. He won't be saying that at all. Do you think Lazarus is thinking in that way? Even though Lazarus had a miserable life in comparison to us, but now he's in the joy of the Lord. And those sorrows, those hardships and sufferings are a distant memory to him in comparison to what he's enjoying now. In contrast, if a man receives the eternal cursing of God, then whatever pleasures, whatever comforts, whatever treasures and riches he enjoyed in this life will be as nothing to him compared to the torments that he is experiencing in hell. Do you think the rich man who feasted sumptuously, who had all these pleasures and comforts, do you think in hell right now being tormented, he's saying, yes, I know that this is horrible and it's going to last forever, but it's worth it. It's worth it because, man, I really had some good stakes in this life. Boy, I really had a good, comfortable, easy life. Is he thinking in that way? Will any wicked man think that way? No, no way will that ever be the case because of what our Lord Jesus Christ says. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man? It's going to profit him nothing. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? What is there in this life that a man can gain that will be worth forfeiting his eternal soul? Is there any treasure so great? Is there any pleasure so wonderful in this life that it's worth going to hell for all eternity? None, nothing like that exists. So what should we do? We should suffer the loss of all things in order to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Better to have little and be righteous than to have the abundance of many wicked persons. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then if God gives to us blessing, if he gives to us riches, don't set your heart on those things. Be content with what God has given to you. Be gracious and be generous and help others and keep your mind fixed on the day of judgment, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what we must do. And that's what the prophet is commending to us the life of Psalm 37. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we know what your word teaches us today. And Lord, how it so clearly, Lord, paints this picture for us. Lord, this distinction, this contrast that exists between the righteous and the wicked. Lord, we know that even the wealthiest of men, Lord, the richest man on the earth, Lord, if he does not know you, if he has not have his sins forgiven, if he has not been reconciled to you through the death of Jesus Christ, he may for a moment enjoy some fleeting pleasures of sin. But Lord, those pleasures will soon give way, Lord, to unthinkable, Lord, unimaginable torments, sufferings, Lord, afflictions that will never come to an end. Lord, that nothing a man can even experience in this life can compare to what the wicked will suffer for all eternity. Lord, we know as well from your word that a righteous man, Lord, one who has been reconciled to you, Lord, a true believer, Lord, even if he suffers a life of complete and utter misery, Lord, even if he is in poverty, Lord, if he is imprisoned, Lord, if he is tortured every day of his life because of righteousness' sake, Lord, in for the sake of Christ. That when he enters into his heavenly reward, Lord, those sufferings that seem so overwhelming and difficult in this life, Lord, they will be regarded by him as light momentary afflictions in comparison to the joys that he experiences in heaven. Lord, may these truths be ever present in our mind. Lord, may we by faith Daily, Lord, behold these realities. Lord, that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, may we never be envious of the wicked. Lord, even when they possess great wealth. Lord, even when they have an abundance of treasures. Lord, may we not envy them. Lord, knowing that soon they will stand before you. And Lord, all of their treasures will be gone. So Lord, may we follow the righteous, Lord, those believers, Lord, the many examples that we have in the Holy Scriptures, like Job, who suffered so greatly, Lord, like Lazarus, who was a beggar, who had sores, whose the dogs came and licked, Lord, who had such a miserable life, and yet, Lord, may we now see him in heaven, Lord, enjoying and experiencing the joys of the Lord. Lord, may we be like the Apostle Paul, who suffered such hardship in this life, but now, Lord, he has entered into his eternal inheritance. And Lord, ultimately, may we be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself experienced many sufferings and much hardship. Lord, beyond what any man has ever endured, even, Lord, the death on a cross. Lord, in all of these we see so clearly that it is not a man's condition in this life, it is not his situation in this life that determines his eternal destiny. But Lord, all that matters is if we are converted, if we have been reconciled to you. And Lord, may we desire that above all things. So Lord, we pray that you would put these things in our mind, that we would believe them by faith, 
Lord, that they would be manifested in the way that we live and that we would seek first the kingdom of God and, Lord, that we would seek your righteousness above all other things. And then, Lord, we pray that you would care for us and provide for us, Lord, as you see fit according to your will in this present life. So, Lord, be with us and help us to have the mind of Christ, Lord, in all things, but, Lord, in this thing as well. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.